Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity to sit here now in air conditioning and uh, quiet and uh, uh, listen to your word together. I pray as we uh, see Jesus today that we see him clearly, we know him better, and we learn better what it means to follow him. Uh, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, uh, by almost any measure uh, you want to use, Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. Um, you don't need to be a Christian to think that, like if you just look at the evidence, the way he's influenced our society in so many ways, uh, it's hard to find somebody who's had more influence. Uh, it's a bit strange, though, when you have that idea in your head and then you recognise he spent the first 38 years of his life in complete and utter obscurity. Um, he lived in a backwater north of uh, Israelite, the main area of Israel, from where he rarely travelled, and the modern culture of his day didn't reach there, and even if he travelled out of there, people wouldn't know his name, they wouldn't recognise him. He was just a nobody. Uh, He was just a simple carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, Here's a map, and I think I've got a laser pointer on this, I do. So, you know, here's a map of Israel, down here is Jerusalem, that's somewhere. Uh, Over here is Caesarea, that's somewhere. In the middle, there's Nazareth. That's nowhere. Uh, people make fun of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Uh, if you travelled out of there, yeah, he wouldn't have been noticed. He's just an Israelite. Um, he actually lived an absolutely exemplary life. The Bible says he never sinned. Uh, however, godliness doesn't actually draw much attention to itself. Um, you'd think he was a godly man if you hung around him and you were in the same town as him, sure. But it's not like people would be drawn to him. Uh, they just go, there's a really godly guy called Jesus and he lives here. <laughs> That's about it. Of course, there were amazing things said about him when he was born, but only a handful of people knew them, really, and remembered them for 30 years, three decades had passed. And so the angel tells Zechariah that the coming Lord is Jesus. The angel tells Mary that he's going to be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. He'll rule the world forever. He'll be here on the throne of David. His kingdom will never end. Zechariah prophesied, these are people earlier in Luke, that Jesus is God's salvation come to Israel. He'll bring forgiveness and tender mercy to God's people. Jesus is the saviour, the angels sing. He'll bring peace to the whole world. Jesus will bring world peace, is what we've heard. And then people hear about this, and then Jesus... you talk about having grand expectations for your children, right? And Jesus takes those grand expectations that are given to him and takes up an unremarkable carpenter's trade for three decades. <laughs> See... It was normal for Jesus when he was born to be extraordinary, but as the years went by, he was just another Israelite living a life of waiting on God to bring the salvation he promised. He's a normal human being. He became, Jesus became a normal human being. And we've seen in Luke already that the normal way of life for Christians is expectantly waiting for God to bring salvation. We look forward to the future as Christians. The main thing we want, our hopes and dreams, if we understand our faith at all, isn't in the here and now. It's... In the future, when Jesus returns, when he brings salvation, then evil will be eradicated and then we'll have all good things forever. So we're waiting for it. And like all faithful Israelites, Jesus, the human being, waited for its coming too. He just got on with normal life. He longed for the kingdom of God to come. He prayed to his father for the kingdom of God to come and he waited on God, his father, to bring it in his timing. Now, friends, last week we looked at a really... um, Strange theme, it it isn't talked about a whole lot. We looked at the fact that God the Son, Jesus, genuinely became a human being. And when I say genuinely, I mean holistically, all in every way, not in a superficial way. He had genuine human experiences. He faced human experiences the same way as other humans do. He had the same faculties of thinking and feeling and the same challenges were put to him. He suffered. He was weak. He was tempted. He learned obedience. He learned He learned to know God by reading the Bible. He trusted God, his father, through it all. 
And so you can't actually go the logic, oh, but he was God, so it wasn't the same for him. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible insists on the opposite. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. And so Jesus' experience of life was just the normal human variety, and he developed in a normal human way. And so you just put it like this. There's no scale on this diagram, but you can see upwards in knowledge and wisdom over time. This is what Jesus experienced in his early life. He was a baby. He became a child. He learnt more. He read the Bible. He learnt, developed normal cognitive skills and motor skills, all this sort of stuff. Eventually he became a man, and as he did, he grew in knowledge and wisdom. That's what we saw in chapter 2. He was a normal human being. God the Son became a human being and had human experiences. And the really surprising part of that is Jesus didn't know everything. It's really important because it's part of what it means to genuinely be human. He started as a baby knowing nothing, and he got to know his father by reading the Bible. That was really important. That was Jesus' preparation for ministry, learning the Bible, and by that means getting to know God again. It was really important, and that's really exciting because what you can say is, well, the first half of this thing, Jesus got to know his father as a human being by reading this book. <laughs> and this book's available to you to get to know the father in the same way. And you have the Holy Spirit helping you to read this book and get to know the father as well. Doesn't that make Bible reading more exciting? You can get to know God the way Jesus got to know his father again as a human being. And so last week, Jesus said it was absolutely necessary. He's at the temple and he's 12 years old, learning from Israel's teachers. He spent days there listening to what they were saying, asking them hard questions and getting to know the Bible. And he said to his parents, it's absolutely necessary that I be here learning my father's business in this way because it's my father's business, it's preparation for my ministry. So Jesus, the normal human being, well, not normal human being, but Jesus, God the Son, become a human being, blended into the crowd of faithful Israelites waiting because that's what he was. He was just another faithful Israelite waiting. And he knew he was God's son. He knew his father had a plan, but he didn't know what it was yet, I don't think. There's good reason to think he didn't know yet until it was told to him. And today it was told to him. Today he was initiated into it because, see, God's plan of salvation is the father's plan. And Jesus submits to it. He does what his father sent him to do and he waits on his father's timing until he's commanded to do it. Three decades passed and then it happens. Luke chapter 3. Just have a look at verses 1 to 2 there and you'll notice we're always talking, when we talk about the Bible and the story of Jesus, it's not just a story, right? We're talking about history. And so passages like this remind us of that because it's got so much, it gives us a historical context. It gives us a place, situation, and who's who of the time. So it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, by my reckoning, that's 29 AD, um, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of uh, Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, there's a lot of detail there, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. It's real history. It's, here's when it happened. This guy was emperor of Rome from 14 to 37 AD. It happened in 15 years. That, that must be 29 AD we're talking about. Um, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea at the time. We don't, he's not important enough to have a bust of his face. What that is is a stone that was discovered in 1961, and it's a, um, it's a dedication of a building. It's in Latin, and I can't read Latin, but I've got the translation here. It says, this building, a Tiberium, was uh, built by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. See, it's, it's real history. This stuff really happened. We're talking about stuff that happened in time and space. So Israel was occupied by Rome, and so this Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, was the governor of this place. Um, just a bit of background. 
Um, Herod the Great was the, the, the king that pursued and tried to kill Jesus. He ruled all of the stuff on the map there, basically. This is Israel. He ruled all of it. Uh, he was a good friend of Rome and knew how to use it. Uh, when he died, he uh, divided up his lands. Uh, well, other people did, <laughs> for his sons. And so it was divided up like this. These are the people that were just described in chapter 1 to 2. Archelaus got Judea. Herod Antipas got Galilee and Perea. And it's got different names, but his son Philip uh, got, how we say this, Iteria and Trichonitis. Then uh, Archelaus was uh, exiled and he died. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, went, oh, well, I'm already you know, looking after the military here. I might as well be governor as well. And so he became governor. And so the situation we've got here is actually, it's, it's just the historical setting, what's going on. This happened in 29 AD or thereabouts. What happened in 29 AD to launch Jesus' ministry? God led the prophet we know as John the Baptist to start his ministry and prepare the way for Jesus. He said, John, time to go. Have a look at verse 3. John the Baptist, the one who prepares, the prophet who prepares the way for Jesus. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, John was a uh, very fiery preacher. (laughs) Really confronted people with their sin and their need to repent. You've got to love it, don't you? Uh, Verse 7, John told the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, to be washed, to show that they're repenting of their sins and being forgiven. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Uh, when apparently when there's a fire in the like the wilderness, um, you see the snakes all escape from their holes and try and run off. It's going, yeah, I'm, I'm warning you, the wrath of God's coming and you, all you care about is not being harmed. You don't really want to repent. You don't really want to submit to God. Have you really thought about what repentance means? Here's what repentance means. It means submitting to God and treating other people justly. And so people came to him and said, well, what are we going to do? He says, well, love other people. If you've got two shirts and somebody else has got no shirt, well, give them a shirt. Love your neighbour is another way of saying that. Tax collectors, what are we going to do? Well, here's a new thing for tax collectors. Why don't you do your job with complete integrity? Treat other people justly. Soldiers, what do we do? Don't misuse your power. Be content with what you have so you aren't motivated to misuse your power for selfish gain. Everyone, submit to God and treat other people justly. See, it's it's Christianity 101, really. Um, Faith and repentance. You've got to trust in Jesus for our salvation and repent, turn away from sin. They always go together. You can't have Jesus as saviour without also having him as Lord. So people say, well, I, I don't want to suffer the anger of God. Good. So trust in Jesus and turn away from your sin because you can't hold on to your sin and have Jesus as saviour at the same time. John's done his job of preparing the way for Jesus. Israelite crowds are longing for the salvation to come now. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. It says the people were, faithful Christianity, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John could possibly be the Messiah. See, they know what's going on now. God is coming to bring his kingdom. So we're looking for the things that have been promised. Their appetites are wet. They're actively looking. And it's a complete great setup for the coming of Jesus now because they're asking the right questions. They've got the right expectations. John answered verse 16. I baptise you with water, but one who's more powerful than I will come. The straps whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is the coming judgement of God. 
uh, and it discerns between two types that people Jesus would gather to himself and those who would be burnt up. And you've got to make sure you're on the right side of that. Jesus is the judge of the world. See, sometimes we talk about Jesus as saviour so much we forget he actually will sit on the judgment seat and judge all of humanity. That's his job. All that the Bible says about the judgment of God is handed to Jesus and God the Father says, you do that now. Well, he will in the future. That's part of Jesus' job. He's saviour and judge. And John says the judge is coming. But John got one thing wrong, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. Uh, he thought it would all happen right away. He thought the judgment's about to happen, you know, tomorrow, next month, something like that. Uh, Jesus will correct him on that in a couple of weeks. But John then even calls that tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the, as you can see, the ruler of the area we're talking about, calls him to repent as well. Herod doesn't like that and throws him in prison. And uh, John will never see again in public ministry. But he'd done his role. The way is prepared for the coming of Jesus. Chapter 3, 21 to 22, is almost everything you need to know about Jesus in two verses. Because this is where Jesus gets baptised and commissioned for ministry, although you probably won't see it straight away. We're going to spend a bit of time on those verses because they're really important. Here's the second part. John got people expecting for the coming salvation. The second part of it was he commissioned, well, sort of facilitated the commissioning of Jesus for his ministry. It says in verse 21, when all the people were being baptised saying they want to repent, they want to be part of God's kingdom, they're waiting eagerly. Jesus was baptised too, he's another Israelite, he joined them, he's waiting eagerly too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. It's an incredibly important moment in the life of Jesus. This is where Jesus' ministry starts. Before that, he's just a Nazarene carpenter. Now, God says, get on with the mission. New era is beginning. Ordinary, obscure existence for you is over forever because at his baptism, Jesus is commissioned by his Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. Commissioned by his Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. Because God's just told him what the plan is. In verse 22, did you notice the plan there? Probably didn't. It seems kind of obscure to us because we don't know where the references are from. Here's the whole plan. Here's everything Jesus came to do. You are my son whom I loved. With you, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That's the plan. And you go, well, how is that the plan? Well, (laughs) I showed you... Oh, that was another ruler. I showed you this a few weeks ago. If you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. It's really about whether you know the things it refers to or not. There's three things you've got to get to know that, to, to get that comic. You've got to know who Batman is, you've got to know who Darth Vader is, and you've got to have seen the movie Wayne's World. If you've seen those three things, you could probably piece it together. Dar- so Batman, Darth Vader are doing a scene from Wayne's World. That's basically So you need to know all the texts, the three things that come together to make this scene, right? It's kind of what happened, is happening at Jesus' baptism. See, at Jesus' baptism, there's two things that God says. He says, Psalm 2, Isaiah 42, go do it. <laughs> He draws them together. Psalm 2, Isaiah 42, go do it. You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You are the eternal king who will rule forever. And you are also the suffering servant who will bear the sins for the whole world. You're both. And in fact, God's plan for the way Jesus will become the king over the whole world is by being the suffering servant, by being the one who will pay the sins for all these people across the ages, dying for the sins of the world so they can have salvation. 
and he'll be their king forever. There's no other path available. (laughs) This is the father's plan. This is the plan that the son submits himself to. And from this point on, God's plans for Jesus are absolutely crystal clear. And he's going to set out to do it. Let's just quickly look at those two texts. So where on earth is that from? Well, eternal king over creation. If you read Psalm 2, um, you'll read uh, God saying of a king that's kind of prophesied, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said, you are my son. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It's a promise about the king of David's line who would rule the world forever. You are my son. That's the first part of the the quote there. However, he's just added a word to the quote, the beloved. And it's really important. What it's saying is the unique son. You're the son. Like all the kings of Israel, in a way, were the son of God. They they, They had that relationship to God, but they were just human beings. You are my only unique beloved son. You are my son, the beloved son. You're the real king forever. You'll rule eternally. Israel won't be surprised by that. They're waiting for a king to rule forever and conquer their enemies. They're surprised by this bit, though. Isaiah 42 uh, promises the coming of a really strange figure called the suffering servant. Um, He's a strange figure because it says he'll die a weak, pathetic death for the sins of Israel, uh, but God will delight in his faithful obedience to him. And so in Isaiah 42, God says, Here is my servant who who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. With him I'm well pleased, is another way of translating that. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. More famously in Isaiah 53, the book of Isaiah talks about the suffering servant about five or six times. There's quite a few passages about him. More famously, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." And so on. Isaiah 53 is a great chapter. So there's two things God said in this commissioning service. Israel, you're waiting for an eternal king who will rule forever. That's Jesus. That's what the Old Testament promises. Israel, you're waiting for the suffering servant who will bear your sins so that you can uh, be forgiven in God's sight and be in his kingdom forever. That's the Old Testament promises. Well, nobody, nobody thought it would be the same person. Because it's hard to imagine how it could be the same person. How can an eternal king who lives forever die? It's a contradiction. So nobody foresaw that the way the eternal king would be crowned was going to be on a Roman cross. Nobody saw that the way the eternal king would have subjects to rule would be by paying the penalty for their sins on that cross. And nobody saw that the way that king would be eternal in the first place would be by first suffering death and then conquering death and being raised to eternal life so that he can rule forever. Because the problem with kings is they die. They can't rule forever, but this one won't. Jesus would become the eternal king by being the suffering servant. There's the plan. Get on with it. There's one more detail. Because Jesus isn't on his own in this. It isn't just the Father saying, here's my plan, Jesus, go do it. It's also the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus for the ministry. You can already see it there in the quote from Psalm 42 on the screen. He put his spirit on him and it's implied by the Spirit to bring justice to the nations. There's lots of passages that talk about it. 
chapter 11, which we uh, had read before, says that uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, with righteousness he'll judge, and so on and so forth. Saying the spirit of God equips Jesus for his ministry. The Holy Spirit has an absolutely crucial role to play. So the Holy Spirit at his baptism descended on Jesus, authorising him, equipping him, empowering him for his ministry. And that's why there aren't miracles before the baptism. Because Jesus hasn't been commissioned yet. He hasn't been empowered yet. And now the Father says, here's my plan, do it, and here's the power to do it by. The Spirit will be your, guide, your companion along the way. And with the Spirit of God on him, a Nazarene carpenter would now preach with the authority of God, heal the sick, raise the dead, defeat Satan, bring the kingdom of God, and rule all of creation. Uh, Friends, it's worth taking a real theology moment here. Uh, Christians believe in the Trinity, and you see all of the Trinity in this scene. The God Christians believe in is three persons. It's one God, three persons. We've said that, I'll keep saying this, it's good to just wash over you, sometimes you get used to the idea and start seeing how it works, that God's Trinity God's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity lovingly depending on one another, lovingly serving one another. Uh, They depend on each other to do their unique roles, and I've written up their unique roles on the screen, and you see all of them really in the baptism scene, but you see it consistently through the whole Bible. Uh, The Father always plans and leads, it's his plan. Uh, The Son executes the plan, he lovingly performs the work the Father gives him to do, and the Holy Spirit provides the power of God's work and testifies to God's work. And consistently, you see that they're the way that the the roles are divided up among the Godhead, that Father, Son, and Spirit have unique roles to play, and they always work as one. So you won't have the Son going off and doing things without the Father's leading and without the Spirit's empowering. It doesn't work that way. One God always working together as one, because it is one God. And Jesus can't run off and be God on his own. He's only God with the Father and with the Spirit. One God working together in perfect unity. So Jesus is publicly identified as heaven's champion. This is my son. Do you know what that means? It means no other religion can be true. Uh, Because who else is commissioned by the Father? Who else has the Holy Spirit to bring salvation to the world? If this is true at all, then it excludes other options. Heaven has spoken. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is the unique place to look for salvation and he's the only one who can achieve God's mission of salvation. And so from this time on, Jesus' ministry begins. His mission part happens. You are my son. With you I'm well pleased. Get on with the mission. Verse 23. Uh, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. See, it's saying it it all began now. He's he's baptised, he's commissioned, he's empowered. He begins his ministry. Puts him on the map of God's plans for the world. But here's the thing. It also puts him on the spiritual map. If Satan didn't know who he was before, he does now. And that's why as you read the gospel, you'll keep on seeing evil forces rise up to oppose him. You're the son of God and we're going to do it. And they're absolutely terrified. They're like lemmings to a firing squad. but They're terrified of him, but they oppose him because God's champion's been publicly identified. And if Satan's to win, he must corrupt Jesus. But God, in his plan, the first thing he wants to do is actually to force that confrontation. So come down to chapter 4. Jesus commissioned, empowered by the Spirit, verse four, uh, chapter 4, sorry. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 
He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them was hungry. That's not an exaggeration. Friends, testing and temptation are absolutely universal experiences for human beings, aren't they? I I don't think you'd be a human being without being tempted, without being tested in your life, probably quite regularly. Um, If Jesus wasn't tested or tempted, you'd probably doubt he was human because it's it's such a human experience. In fact, the Bible says that. Um, It says in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in the humanity so that by his death... He could break the power of Satan, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. That's what we've been saying. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Suffered when he was tempted. Friends, that's what's at stake when you're tempted, isn't it? (laughs) See, temptation's a moment of decision where the wrong option is attractive to you. The wrong option is the one you'd really like to do for some reason. It's attractive to you, and usually the reason it's attractive to you is because the cost of not giving in to temptation is some kind of suffering. It's the the, the giving in to temptation is the easy road. You, You actually suffer if you take the hard road. That's why it's tempting. And you can use the term really loosely, suffering. I mean, it might just be, you know, if you, sp- if you speed, you'll get to your destination slower, or faster. If you don't speed, you'll get there slower. You know, it's just inconvenient. But you'll speed because, you know, the easy option is speeding and getting there faster. There's costs like loss of employment or friendship, loss of friendships if you don't compromise, if you don't give in to temptation. But some people have to face really, really big sufferings if they are willing to not give in to temptation. Uh, if they do give in to it, they'll get away with it, but if they don't give in to temptation, they'll face real persecution or torture or even death. And God calls all these people to respond to temptation with obedience, to faithfully wait on God for rescue and to patiently persevere in suffering without compromise. And that's what Jesus was called to too. And so he gets into the wilderness and he faces Satan and it's an allegiance contest. God's way or Satan's way, or God's way or any other way, really. It's all the same. Remember, friends, as we talk, read about Jesus facing temptation, Jesus became genuinely human. He struggled with the same natural responses you would struggle with in this situation. And he re- struggled with them in a human way. And so Satan would offer Jesus a way to be king without having to travel the path of the suffering servant God's laid before him. Now, if you notice some of the details in the passage... Um, it says it was in the wilderness and it says it was for, for 40 days. Does that remind you of anything? This is Old Testament illusion stuff again. Israel in the wilderness being tested for 40 years, right? So we did an Exodus series, and this is going to be real slow on the slide, but you remember um, God led Israel from through the Red Sea and down Sinai to Mount Horeb, or you know it as Mount Sinai probably, and they got to Marah and the waters are bad, and they're going, oh, God, you left us, you led us here to die, and so God made it clean, and then they go around the corner and realise he was leading them to a good spring anyway, and they should have just waited. They should have just trusted God, and that's the... Um, that's the problem the whole journey. They keep going down the coast, they're whinging their own food. Well, God's providing food for you. You go down the coast and they say, we don't have water again, and God brings water from the rock for them. And it's called Massa and Meribah, which means testing and trouble. They renamed the place because they whinged, whinged so much on the journey. <laughs> and so that's the background of this temptation. Jesus is presented as a new Israel being tested the way Israel was tested. Would he trust God the way they failed to trust God? 
Could he trust God to have the best in, his best interests at heart and to provide for him? And so as you read about the temptation, you notice Jesus doesn't defeat Satan with superhuman strength. He doesn't defeat him with exorcism or special powers or being superhuman. He defeats Jesus in the same way. Sorry, Satan defeats Jesus defeats Satan. I better get that right. <laughs> Jesus defeats Satan by clinging to the truth of God's word, exactly the same way you can. He's utterly convinced of the truth of God's word and has resolved integrity and faithfulness that doesn't disintegrate under pressure because he is convinced that God's word is true and God is looking out for him. And so Satan tests him in three ways, and each of Jesus' responses come from Deuteronomy 6-8, to which is part talking about that, that journey Israel took and their failure and how they should have acted. Jesus learned his Bible, and now he's going to use it. Verses 2-4. to four, uh, Sorry, 3. First temptation. The Satan said to him, If you're really the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man must not live on bread alone. Could Jesus trust God to provide his needs or would he need to take matters into his own hands? That's, that's the problem. See, Israel kept accusing God in, uh, of not looking out for them. Deuteronomy 8 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you into the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know that, uh, what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. This is how Jesus is being tested. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus, you're the son of God. You shouldn't starve to death in this wilderness. Turn the stones into bread. You've got the power to do that, don't you? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's trusting his father. It's the same uh, temptation that faces us quite regularly, friends. Can I trust God through this rough patch? Is integrity, is faithfulness to God's commands, when it's really tough, worth it? It's the same temptation we face. Second one, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant. He got a vision. All the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to if you worship me, and it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows the plan. He's going to be the king who rules forever by being the suffering servant, right? That's what he's just been ordered to do. Satan tries to undermine the whole thing. How about you turn your allegiance to me? I'll give you the rule of the whole world right now, on the spot, and we can skip this whole nasty dying on the cross business, is what he's saying. Temptation 101, can I skip on obedience for the sake of avoiding suffering? That's what temptation is. Jesus answers from Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and implies the rest of the passage. Take your oaths in his name. Don't follow other gods or gods of people around you, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he'll destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa, that place where Israel failed. Classic temptation, is God holding out on me? Can I really trust him? Sin's way better, sin's way easier, sin's way funner. And obedience often involves suffering. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Serve him only. Because we're faithfully waiting for our reward in heaven, not in the here and now. 
The answer is always to faithfully wait on God. His best for you is at the end. So persevere faithfully through it. Third temptation, Satan gets real tricky now. Jesus can quote the Bible. Well, Satan can too. Verses 9 to 11. Satan led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written. This is in the Bible. God says this. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so they will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, friends, I've got to admit, I read this and I heard what Satan was saying and I read the psalm he was quoting and I had trouble working out what was wrong with it. It's really tricky, actually. Um, Here's the psalm. Uh, It's just part of it. It says, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, if you trust in him and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's the bit he, um, he quoted. Listen to the rest of it. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. I will acknowledge him, for he will acknowledge my name. That's all the things Jesus is doing. He'll call on me and I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll deliver him and honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. It's really a tricky quote. <laughs> He's saying, doesn't God promise those who love him will be protected? And you love God. You're the son of God for crying out loud. God's got to protect you, so do it. Jump off. Be protected. Heaven's resources will be unleashed at your disposal to rescue you. Friends, here's the thing. It is one thing to entrust yourself to God and be confident that he will save you in the end. It is an entirely different thing to deliberately put yourself in harm's way in order to try to force God's hand. That's an entirely different thing. Because Jesus is faithfully waiting on God to bring the salvation he's promised in his timing, to execute his plan in his timing. It's what we all do. And forcing God to respond with great acts of faith, like jumping off a building to be rescued by angels, looks like faith. It's actually faithlessness. Because it puts us in the driver's seat, telling God where we're heading and how he has to rescue us now, when we should trust God to set the agenda. Jesus came to do the Father's will, not his own. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's the same text as before, just the, other, the bottom of it. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Well, Satan's failed to corrupt this one. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And devil, the devil will just be in the background of Luke's gospel as we read until he's an opportunity to corrupt Jesus and to cause him to fail bringing salvation to the world. If he can. <laughs> Friends, the main thing we learn from the temptation of Jesus for us is that compromise is never the answer. And that's a big claim because we often think this situation's little compromise is okay. But look at what Jesus did. He's our example. God's will for your life is to never compromise on obedience to him, to never compromise on faithfulness to him. It is to rather suffering hardship and difficulty than compromise on your commitment to honouring him in everything and trusting him in everything. Compromise is never the answer. And the harder the situation is for you to obey him, the more pressure that's being applied, the easier compromise is, then chances are that's just more and more likely God is calling you to accept suffering and difficulty as the cost of following him. That's the example Jesus sets for us. But here's some good news. Because we've all failed. We know a saviour who's been tested in every way and who didn't fail. 
And so he got what he deserved. He ascended into heaven. He got eternal life. And he sits at the Father's hand willing to offer that eternal life and that forgiveness to all who trust in him. So friends, don't compromise. But know the Savior who didn't compromise so he can save you when you need him. So you can be reminded again that he's paid for all your sins, past, present and future. Verse 14, this is where we're end, because it's the beginning of a new beginning for Jesus and the beginning of his ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. God's champion emerges from the desert ready to execute God's plan and salvation can now begin. But that's coming weeks. How about we uh, thank God for the saviour we have and we should also pray, there's probably people who are here who are facing temptations and struggles at the moment, and we've learned some things about that this morning, so how about I pray for us with that as well. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a saviour who has been tested and tempted in every way, uh, like we are, yet without failing, without sinning. Thank you that he underwent suffering and difficulty and harm rather than compromising. And thank you that he died for our sins on the cross, that he was willing to be the suffering servant. And because he's the suffering servant, he became the eternal king who now rules and will rule forever. Thank you so much for him and all he did for us. We can only imagine what it's really like to be in that situation and to have the weight of eternity and executing your plans on your shoulders. But we thank you that we have a human saviour. Your son became a human being and that he, even as a human being with all our weaknesses and frailties, went through with it. Thanks so much for him. We also want to pray for those of us here, all of us face temptations and struggles uh, and testing. We want to pray, Father, that you give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to uh, have integrity and to not compromise, and wisdom as well, to know how to best deal with situations, uh, have uh, outcomes that are good ones that we just handle ably to bring uh, good outcomes to situations please give us all we need to deal with each situation that's difficult uh, with all we need and please help us to be faithful to your name in jesus name amen if you reach down under your seats you'll find one of these it's a Care Connect card. Um, if you'd like um, to update your details, or we'd like to have a visit from one of our pastors, or um, just let us know that you're new here uh, so that we can be in contact, or if you've got any suggestions, or um, you'd just like to say that the sermon was good today, or it wasn't, whatever you want to say, I think it was good. Just um, fill out this Care and Connect card, and... Um, at the box by the door on the way to morning too, just place it in there. And questions, prayer points, anything you'd like to put onto the card. And if there's not enough room on the front, the back's empty. You can fill it out there. But there's lots of um, opportunity for you to fill out these cards and let us um, pray with you and be in contact with you. So while you're doing that, the band is going to come and. Um, Prepare our final song, which is As You Go, which is a great, a great way to think about what you should do during the week.